Misconceptions, we all have them. And it's sad to say that most of us have embraced incorrect ideas about any, any number of topics. And this, of course, includes many misconceptions that people have surrounding the details and doctrines that we find in the Bible. Uh, for example, there are those who believe that the forbidden fruit which was found there in the Garden of Eden was actually an apple. It wasn't. We don't know. But a lot of people think it was an apple. And then there are those who believe that Joan of Arc uh, was Noah's wife. Uh, again, uh, a misconception. Uh, some people incorrectly conclude that Sodom and Gomorrah were a happily married couple in the Bible. And, and, and let's not forget about all the Christians who truly believe that there is a verse somewhere in the Bible that reads, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, no, that's, that's not found in the Bible. And neither is godliness is next to cleanliness. So look, uh, these are many misconceptions that people have. And without debate, the world is filled with people who have misconceptions about the Bible. And uh, with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that there are also many misconceptions about our Messiah. Uh, for example, most people believe that Jesus Christ was born on December 25th. If that's something that you believe, sorry to burst the, the bubble this morning, it's not correct. We don't know what day he was born on, but chances are it wasn't December 25th. Then there are those who insist that the Lord Jesus must have faked his resurrection and, and somehow uh, you know, survived the crucifixion and then just kind of faked his way uh, through, this, uh, through this idea that he rose up from the grave. Uh, other people have embraced the misconception that Jesus continues to be crucified at every mass service. And, and then there are those who have been duped into believing that our Messiah wasn't really God incarnate. No, they believe that he was just a mortal man. Clearly, misconceptions about the Messiah are more common than we might like to imagine. Now, with all this being the case, it's my hope that we'll all become believers who are able to recognize every miscon uh, messianic misconception that we come across. And with this as the goal, we're going to spend our time today examining three misconceptions that the religious leaders of Israel had about our Messiah. And, and as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that one common misconception that they had about the Messiah, well, it's based on the belief that Christ came to condemn Another misconception about the Messiah uh, that we find back in the first century was based on the belief that Christ came to condone. Uh, thirdly and finally, uh, we'll consider the misconception about our Messiah that led people to think that Christ came to conform. With this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Here we find the religious leaders of Israel uh, continuing to reveal their own misconceptions about the Messiah. And as you make your way to the fifth chapter of Luke, I, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. Remember, it was in our study last week when we learned about a group of religious leaders who came out to examine the miraculous ministry of our Messiah. But rather than rejoicing with the people who were being healed they critically questioned the authority of the healer. And that's when Jesus let him know that he not only had the power to heal, but also he had the authority to forgive sins. And in this way, he was presenting himself as being the Messiah. Sadly, the religious leaders of Israel, they were quick to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the reason why is because they had so many misconceptions about the Messiah. In order to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 5. We'll begin reading there at verse 27. Here Luke writes, after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house, 
And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Now here in these verses we find Jesus. He's inviting this, ta- uh, this tax collector named Levi to, to become one of his disciples. He tells him, hey, come follow me. And according to Luke here, Levi left everything. He left everything there at the tax office. And he began to follow Jesus. In order to grasp the significance of this story, it's important to note that Levi is actually another name for the apostle Matthew. Proof of this can be found in the Gospel of Matthew, where the Apostle Matthew, he recounts his own conversion story. But rather than referring to himself by the Hebrew name Levi, we find this former tax collector embracing a more common name, which was more fit for his new life in Christ. As a matter of fact, it's in Matthew chapter 9, where Levi tells us that Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Matthew's telling the same story uh, that Luke told, but rather than using the name Levi, he gives us his name, Matthew. And as we consider the way that Levi, the tax collector, became Matthew, the apostle of Jesus Christ, we must not fail to notice a mystical truth that's found in the meanings of these names. You see, the name Levi, it, it literally means joined together, but it's actually based on a root word which was used of the one who borrows or even takes money from another. Therefore, Levi, a very fitting name for a tax collector. Someone who takes money from another. And it's sad to say that many of these tax collectors were happy to take more than they were supposed to take. Now compare this to the name Matthew, which is based on the Hebrew name Matathiah, which means gift of Jehovah. Consider the contrast here. Levi is a taker of money, Matthew is a gift of Jehovah. And as we consider the meanings of both names, we find uh, the story of Matthew's conversion here. Uh, Before he met Jesus, Matthew was a tax collector named Levi who was guilty, uh, guilty of taking more than he was supposed to take. But then Levi met the Messiah. And it was on that day as he decided to follow Jesus when Levi, the tax taker, became Matthew, the believer, after receiving the free gift of Jehovah. And after receiving the free gift of Jehovah, Matthew became a giver because he wanted to give the gift of grace away to all of his friends. The evidence of this is seen in his new desire to lead his friends to Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, look with me again here at Luke chapter 5. I want to draw your attention to verse 29. Here Luke tells us that Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. Here in this verse, we find Matthew hosting this huge feast in his own home. He invited Jesus over. And not only Jesus, but he invited all of his friends, all of his co-workers. He invited everyone who would come. And while we aren't told explicitly, I have no doubt that Matthew was hoping that his friends would meet Jesus and receive the gift of Jehovah by faith in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we can also be certain that the Lord Jesus saw this as an opportunity to reach these people as well. Sadly, rather than believing the best about Jesus, there were religious leaders who began to assume the worst about our Savior because he was spending time with these sinners. With this as the focus, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 5. I want to draw your attention to verse 30. Here we learn that the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you, 
eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Now here in this verse, we find the religious leaders known as scribes and Pharisees. They're complaining against Jesus and they're complaining against his disciples. And it's important to understand that the word complain found there in the middle of verse 30, it's translated from a Greek word which was used of those who confer secretly together in order to grumble about others. Yeah, complainers. Complainers are those who secretly share their discontent, displeasure about others. And they love running to the rumor mill to to share all of their complaints that they have. And knowing that it's not uncommon for carnal Christians to spread their cancerous complaints with anyone who will listen, I encourage every believer to embrace the exhortation that Paul presented in Philippians chapter 2. It's Philippians 2 verse 14 where he declares, Do all things without complaining. Do all things without complaining. He doesn't say do some things without complaining. He doesn't say do all things only complaining some of the time. No, he says do all things without complaining. And that's good advice for every Christian. If you feel a desire to begin complaining about someone or something, just remember the Christian has been called to do all things without complaining. Without debate, it's easy to complain about things that we don't fully understand. Therefore, rather than running off to the rumor mill with a running list of all of our latest complaints, let's take a moment to realize that some of our complaints might be based on misinformation. They could be based on misunderstandings. Not only that, but there are also times when our critical complaints about others stem from incorrect expectations that are based on distorted misconceptions. And that's exactly what we find here in our text today. In order to prove my point, let's look again here at Luke chapter 5. I want to draw your attention back to verse 30. Here we learn that the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, here in this verse, we learn that the scribes and the Pharisees, they're complaining about Jesus and they're complaining about his disciples. And the reason why is because this one who had just claimed that he had the power to forgive sins and the authority to forgive people of their sins, you know, he, he's now spending time eating supper with a group of sinners. And so they're complaining about it. Wait, aren't you the guy that just said you have the authority to forgive sins and now you're hanging out with sinners? That word sinners found there at the end of verse 30. It's used of those who are living a life devoted to sin. We're not just talking about someone that, that stumbles back into sin. We're talking about someone who's living a life that's completely devoted to their sins. And as they watched Jesus eating with these men who were completely devoted to their sins, the scribes and the Pharisees were quick to question his claims about the authority to forgive sins. They were shocked because Jesus here was eating dinner in the home of a tax collector. And the reason why this was so surprising was due to the fact that the tax collectors of Israel, they were Jewish men who were collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. They were Jewish men who were working for the Romans. That being the case, tax tax collectors in Israel, they were not only seen as sinners, but they were also believed to be traitors. I'll remind you, Judea was turned into a Roman province in 6 AD after the deposition of Herod Archelaus. You better believe that the Jews who were willing to go to work for their new Roman rulers, 
They were seen as traitors. Therefore, Jesus, as he ate dinner with all of these tax collectors, he appeared to be siding with traitors who were servants of the Roman Empire. Now this brings us to our first messianic misconception, which was held by many Israelites there in the first century. And in order to understand this misconception, I want to consider a messianic prophecy that's presented by the prophet Isaiah. If you would, let's hold our place here in the Gospel of Luke. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. If you would, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 9. As you make your way to the ninth chapter of Isaiah... I want to take a moment to point out that the Old Testament contains several prophecies that point to a glorious day when the promised Messiah will come and establish his kingdom here on earth. And it's on that day that you know, he's going to bring in everlasting righteousness and it's going to be a, a glorious time, no doubt. We find one of these prophecies here in Isaiah chapter 9. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6, here Isaiah declares, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. The government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Creator, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. Now, in light of this prophecy, it really is no wonder why the Israelites there in the first century were looking for a messianic ruler who would come along and claim the throne of David and thereby overthrowing the entire Roman Empire. They were waiting for a Messiah who would set them free from the tyranny of Rome by restoring the kingdom of Israel. And while we can be certain that there is coming a day when the Messiah will establish everlasting judgment and justice, it's also important to understand that these scribes and Pharisees there in the first century, they were failing to embrace all of the messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament. You might not know this. But the Bible actually includes two branches of prophecy that help us to grasp the entire mission of the Messiah. One of these branches, as we've seen, presents us with the prophetic picture of a Messiah who will come and establish his kingdom here on earth. We've seen this in Isaiah chapter 9. Another example is found in Daniel chapter 7, where we learn that the dominion of the Messiah will be everlasting and his kingdom shall never be destroyed. So this is one of these branches of messianic prophecies about this ruling and reigning king. At the same time, though, there's also a second branch of messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament. This branch presents us with a Messiah who would suffer and die for the sins of the world. Uh, for example, Isaiah chapter 53 tells us, uh, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would come and die for the sins of the people. And in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel informs us that the Messiah would suffer the death penalty before establishing his everlasting throne. As we consider these two distinct branches of messianic prophecy, it seems obvious to me that the Israelites there in the first century they had developed a messianic misconception because they were only looking at one of these branches. They were looking for a Messiah who would come and restore the kingdom of Israel. 
We see this found in the fact that the disciples of Christ continually asked him if this was the time that he was going to restore the kingdom of Israel. We see them asking this question several times, even at the moment of his ascension into heaven. They're like, is this the time? Are you going to claim the throne of David now? In John chapter 6, we find a multitude of people preparing to take Jesus by force. Why? Because they were going to make him the king of Israel. And in John chapter 12, we find the Israelites proclaiming Jesus to be the king of Israel as he rode into Jerusalem on, on, the, on a donkey and they, they placed the palm branches before him singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. In light of these examples, there's no doubt in my mind that the first century Jews had a misconception about the Messiah. They were right in thinking that the Messiah would come and establish his kingdom, but not before accomplishing the first branch of those prophecies, which was to suffer and die for the people. They were looking for the king rather than the suffering servant found in Isaiah chapter 53. And in light of this misconception, the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't looking for a Messiah who was sent to suffer so that he could save sinners. No, they were looking for the conquering king who would condemn every sinner with righteous judgment. And it's for this reason that their messianic misconceptions caused them to miss our gracious Savior. Thankfully for us, the Lord Jesus cleared up their misconception. Uh, One example of this is found in John chapter 3 where we find Jesus. He's talking with a Pharisee whose name was Nicodemus. And he was helping Nicodemus, this Pharisee, to understand that he was sent to first die for our sins. It's in John 3 verse 17 where Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son. In other words, the mission of our Messiah wasn't motivated by his desire to come and condemn sinners. No, instead, Jesus was sent to save sinners from the condemnation that we already deserve. And then isn't it nice to know that those who are in Christ Jesus are free from that condemnation. Paul confirms this by telling us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now it's true that there is coming a day when the Lord Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, but it's going to be the law that condemns every sinner. The law condemns the sinner. Jesus was sent to save us. And we can rejoice in knowing that while that day of judgment is coming, we currently find ourselves living in an age of grace. Therefore, rather than perpetuating the messianic misconception that would lead people to think that Jesus came to condemn every sinner, I suggest that we help every unbeliever to realize that the Lord Jesus actually came to save us. He came to save us from the condemnation of the law. And as we help people to realize that Christ didn't come to condemn the world, but rather to save sinners like us, We should also clear up a second messianic misconception, which is based on the belief that Christ came to condone our immoral behavior. This is a misconception which is held by many. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel account. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's correcting this messianic misconception that leads people to think that Christ will condone our sinful behaviors. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at Luke chapter 5. I want to begin reading at verse 30. Here again, we learn that the scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now here in this response, we find the Lord Jesus. He's addressing the complaints of his critics. Remember, they're they're complaining because he's eating with these sinners and these tax collectors. The implication of their complaint is, why are you sitting around condoning the sins of these people that you're hanging out with? It's here in his response where we find the Lord Jesus correcting their messianic misconception. The the misconception is that he's condoning their sins, and Jesus says no. He presents them with a clear comparison between the position of the physician and the ministry of the Messiah. Now think about it for a moment. The physician who refuses to spend time with those who are sick, that's a horrible physician right there. The physician who refuses to spend time with those who are sick can't help anyone. No, instead, we expect physicians to spend time with people who are sick. And in similar fashion, it only makes sense then for the Messiah, who was sent to save sinners, to spend time with those he's trying to save. In order to further grasp this comparison, it's important for us to remember that the good physician doesn't spend time with those who are sick in order to condone the disease. Could you imagine going to your physician saying, yeah, I've got this, you know, this horrible disease. I'm suffering from sickness. And the physician says, I'm going to spend some time with you. And I just want you to let you know that, you know, I, I, I approve of your disease. I condone this sickness of yours. Do you feel better? No. <laughs> Get me medication. The good physician isn't spending time with those who are sick in order to condone the disease. No, the the good physician spends time with those who are sick in order to prescribe proper medication so that they can be healed. Therefore, when Jesus compares the ministry of the Messiah to the good physician, he's helping his critics to understand that he wasn't spending time with sinners to condone their wicked ways. No, instead he's eating with the sinners so that he can have the opportunity to help them to understand their need to repent of their sins so that they might become better. As a matter of fact, look with me again there at verse 31. Here again, Jesus answers and says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To do what? To repent. That word repentance is translated from a Greek word which refers to the changing of the mind. And as we consider the point that he's making here, there should be no doubt in our minds that Jesus wasn't eating with the sinners because he wanted to condone their sinful ways. No, instead, he spent time with these sinners so that he could help them to understand their need to repent. He was calling every sinner to change their mind about the direction that their life was heading in. It's also important to understand that Jesus was not only challenging sinners to change their minds about the direction of their lives, but he was also calling those who saw themselves as righteous to change their minds as well. He was calling those who knew they were living in sin to repent, but he was also sent to call the self-righteous to repent of their self-righteousness. In order to prove my point, let's cons- uh, consider something that Paul wrote in his letter to the Christians in Rome. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And As you make your way to the third chapter of Romans, I want to take a moment to remind you that every person has, has actually sinned against the Lord. It's just that some people don't really know they have, or don't think they do. There are some people who are so self-righteous that they think that they're good enough to get into heaven. 
They think that they're good enough, that they've done enough good to be accepted by God. And yet, according to Paul, we've all fallen short of God's righteous standard, and we all need to repent. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 9, here Paul asks, What then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all, uh, they have together uh, become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Paul here was assuring his audience that we've all failed to live up to the righteous standard of God's perfect holiness. Not one of us is good enough. Not one of us is righteous enough to be accepted by God. And he sums it up there in Romans 3, verse 23, by declaring, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And with that being the case, we know that Jesus not not only came to save those who knew they were sinners, but he also is calling the self-righteous to repent as well. The Lord didn't come to condemn sinners, but instead he came to call sinners like us to repent of our sins so that we can be saved. At the same time, he's not condoning our sin either, but rather he's calling us to bear the fruits of repentance. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's consider the story that John presented in his gospel account. Continue holding your place there in the gospel of Luke. Let's turn to the gospel of John. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 8. You see, it's in the 8th chapter of John's gospel account where we find uh, the self-righteous religious leaders of Israel. They're putting Jesus to the test once again. And they did this by encouraging him to publicly condemn a sinful woman who was caught committing adultery. And as we consider his reaction to this situation, we must not fail to notice that Jesus didn't condemn her, nor did he condone her sexual sin. With this in mind, look with me here at John chapter 8. I want to begin reading at verse 2. Here John writes, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. But then notice, he says, go and sin no more. 
As we consider this story, we can see that the Lord Jesus was able to bring every person that was present here to some point of conviction. They were convicted in their conscience. And one reason why is due to the fact that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of perfection. Now, we aren't told what he was writing in the dirt. It's my guess that he was writing the list of sins that were true of all the men who were there. One sin that we're aware of is that these guys knew who the woman was engaging in adultery with because they caught her in the act and yet they didn't bring him forward. So they're complicit to some degree here. I think it was a setup and that they were just trying to use this woman to trap Jesus and they were willing to you know, uh, risk her life in the process. And so as Jesus is writing in the dirt, chances are he's writing the list of sins that they're all guilty of. And one by one, after their conscience uh, was convicted, they all left. And and there were no accusers, except one who was able to cast the first stone, Jesus Christ. The standard is he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, the only one there uh, that, that fits the description is Jesus The only one there who had the moral ground to stand on to be able to pick up a stone and cast at her, it was Jesus. And yet Jesus was unwilling to condemn her. At the same time, he wasn't willing to condone her sexual sin either. Again, there in the middle of verse 11, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In other words, the Lord Jesus was not only uh, you know, challenging this adulterous woman to repent, but he was also commanding her to allow this change of mind that happens at repentance to become a change of life, which is then walked out by faith. And in light of this story, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that those who truly repent of their sins, those who truly trust in Jesus Christ, we ought to experience a changed life that reflects the changed mind that occurred at the time of repentance. And in this way, we bear the fruits of repentance as we begin to walk by faith with Jesus Christ. Now, uh, with this as our goal, we should take a moment to consider something that Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. If you would continue holding your place during the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles now to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians, I want to take a moment to address the arguments of those who would attempt to convince us that the Lord Jesus actually condones their sinful behavior. You know, much like those scribes and Pharisees who uh, were implying that Jesus was condoning the sins uh, of those tax collectors, uh, there are many people who who would sit in the role of that tax collector or that sinner and, and actually make the argument that Jesus is okay with their sinfulness. Some people believe that Jesus is condoning their divorce, though they don't have biblical grounds for it. I've even heard people say stuff like, you know, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. You know, or this just wasn't the right one, or any other reason except for a biblical reason, and, and then they want, they want Jesus to put his stamp of approval and condone uh, the divorce. Or, or others will insist that Jesus actually condones their sexual sins. Like, like yeah, you know, I mean, you know, we consider ourselves married, and Jesus has got to be okay with that, right? No. No, Jesus doesn't condone sin. And when the Bible says that something is sinful, Jesus will never come along and say, yeah, I'll let you slide on this one. It's okay. No, he, he, he doesn't condone any sin and calls every Christian to repent. 
Let's consider how Paul puts it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you would look with me there at verse 9, here Paul asks, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. People who are living in these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news, verse 11. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is letting us know here that that, uh, those who will not repent of their sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who will repent, those who trust in Jesus Christ, we will begin to bear the fruit of repentance as the Lord washes us and changes our lives. And with that being the case, it would be incorrect for us to think that the current absence of condemnation must be evidence that Christ condones our sinful behavior. He doesn't. It's just that the day of judgment hasn't come yet. He doesn't condone our sins. No, instead, he calls us to repent of our sins. He says, I don't condemn you now, but go and sin no more. Why? Because there is coming a day of condemnation. It's a messianic misconception to think that Christ came to condemn us for our sins. The law is what condemns us. Therefore, it's a misconception to think that Christ came to condone our sinful behaviors. He doesn't. He calls us to repent so that we can be saved. The third and final messianic misconception that I want to examine today is based on the belief that Christ came to conform us and this is how he changes us. That's not the case at all. And in order to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel account. Here we find the religious leaders continuing to reveal their messianic misconceptions. If you would look with me again there at Luke chapter 5. I want to pick up our study there at verse 33 where Luke writes, Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? Now, here in this verse, we find the scribes and the Pharisees, they're presenting Jesus with yet another question, which was based on their messianic misconceptions. Uh, You see, they previously wanted to know why they were feasting with the sinners, and now they want to know why they're not fasting with the religious people. You know, yeah, you guys are feasting over here. You're not fasting over there. What's wrong with you guys? That word fast found there in the middle of verse 33 is translated from a Greek word which was used in reference to the religious ritual by which the people of God would abstain from food and drink. And in order to understand this question, I want to take a moment to consider the fasts that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, For example, in Leviticus chapter 16, we find the Lord uh, instructing the Israelites to afflict their souls to do this with fasting. And this would happen every year on the Day of Atonement. And so once a year, uh, they were required to fast on this uh, specific day. This was the only fast that the Lord required of his chosen people. But we also find the Israelites uh, abstaining from food on several specific occasions. Uh, For example, uh, they would fast during times of war. Or they would fast uh, when loved ones were ill or or at the time of, uh, of the death of a family member. They fasted to demonstrate their repentance before God, and they fasted to commemorate the calamities that that had previously affected Israel. And to sum it all up, the Israelites would abstain from food, they would abstain from drink, in order to uh, afflict themselves and fix their focus on the Lord through purposeful prayer. 
Sadly, the scribes and the Pharisees there in the first century, they had turned this humble demonstration of contrition into a ritualistic requirement. It had become legalistic. And it's for this reason that they wanted to know why the disciples of Jesus were failing to embrace their religious tradition of fasting. In other words, they wanted to know why someone who had claimed to be the anointed one of God would then turn around and fail to encourage his disciples to conform to the religious customs which were being practiced by the pious. And in response to their question, uh, Jesus sets out to clear up their messianic misconception. And he does this by, uh, by, by helping them to, to consider the time in which they lived. I want to pick up our study of Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 34. Here we learn that Jesus said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, speaking of his resurrection. And he says, Then they will fast in those days. Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus helping the scribes and the Pharisees to understand why he wasn't asking his disciples to fast. And according to the Lord here, it's because this wasn't the time for self-affliction. No, instead, this was the time for celebration. And the reason why? Well, it's due to the fact that the promised Messiah had finally arrived. The one that they were waiting for, the Savior of Israel, was walking amongst them. Rather than expecting his disciples to afflict themselves with fastings, Jesus wanted them to rejoice in his presence. In an attempt to illustrate his point, the Lord reminds the religious leaders there about the celebrations that would occur whenever the friends of the bridegroom uh, would take the, the bridegroom out and rejoice with this one who was about to be married. Now imagine with me for a moment that, that you're out at a restaurant, you know, it's a really swanky place, and, and across the, uh, the, 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 the area, you, you see a group of guys, they're at another table, and they're celebrating the engagement of their friend. As they're enjoying this delicious meal, they're, they're, they're laughing out loud, they're joking around, they're rejoicing with the bridegroom because they know that their friend is just head over heels in love with his fiance. And, 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 and as you're watching this all go down and you're thinking, they're just being too loud for this restaurant. I'm going to go over there and say something, you know. Just imagine, you know, this sour-faced man approaching the table, leaning in and asking, can you guys keep it down? You know, me and my friends, we're over at this other table. We're fasting and praying, you know, and you guys are kind of disturbing this whole thing with your, with your carrying on and laughing. Could you imagine? But this is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were, were asking. You guys are just having way too much fun here. You know, the, the real pious people, we're fasting. And Jesus is like, why are you fasting? I'm here. Let's party. Rather than rejoicing with the bridegroom, they wanted Jesus to control his disciples, to, to keep it down. They wanted Jesus to force them to embrace the religious traditions required of those who were allegedly devout. And as we consider their unreasonable expectation, it seems to me that the scribes and the Pharisees truly believed that when the Messiah arrived, he would come and endorse their religious rituals. But, but Jesus wasn't doing that. 
The Lord Jesus was clearly failing to direct his disciples into this life of religious conformity, which they were certain was the right way to live. And therefore, they had the Messianic misconception that led them to, to reject Jesus as the Messiah. What they were failing to realize was that the, the, their test of conformity was actually based on their Messianic misconception. And in order to prove my point, let's uh, consider a similar situation that Matthew records in the 15th uh, chapter of his gospel account. If you will, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Here again, we find these scribes and Pharisees. They're challenging the Lord Jesus with yet another question about the practices of his disciples. And in this case, uh, it had nothing to do with feasting or fasting, but rather the washing of hands. The religious leaders of Israel were disappointed over the fact that the disciples of Christ were failing to conform to their customary washing of the hands. As a matter of fact, uh, look with me here at Matthew chapter 15. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Here Matthew writes, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now as we consider this question, you might think, well, the, these guys, they, they were concerned about hygiene. You know, they, they wanted, uh, you know, if they're going to sit down and break bread with one another, you know, at least have clean hands, Right? And if that were the case, I could relate with their concerns because I myself, I'm a bit of a germaphobe. You know, I've always kind of been the guy uh, in our leadership at the church who's a little bit more careful about making sure my hands are washed. And, 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 you know, I'm just not really into like, you know, touching other people who just, you know, don't seem to be on the same level as me. And then, and then I'd be mocked for, for my germaphobia by these guys. But who's laughing now? Yeah. Yeah. You're all on my page now, huh? Where's the Purell, you know? Is everything Lysoled? Yeah. Welcome to my world. I've been living this way for years. But I don't think that the scribes and Pharisees are, are concerned about germs like I am. Like, like when I you know, am about to leave the bathroom and I see another man just kind of splitting from the stall and heading past the sink and heading right out the door, I'm thinking, you're not a Christian at all, are you? You know, you're... <laughs> A real Christian would, would wash their hands and, and, and then they're like, you're a Pharisee, you know. But so, back to the text. These guys aren't concerned about hygiene. They're only concerned about religious conformity. These are our rituals. Why don't your guys follow them? They expected the Messiah to enforce religious conformity. They expected him to conform his disciples to their rituals. With this in view, I want to consider the Lord's response, which is found here in Matthew 15. Look with me there, beginning at verse 3. Here Jesus asks them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be, be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may, might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
Here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's rebuking these religious leaders there in Israel. And the reason why is, was due to the fact that they had taken uh, you know, explicit doctrine of God's word and, and, and set it off to the side so that they could continue on with their man-made traditions. They had placed their religious traditions above the word of God. Therefore, rather than encouraging the Israelites to simply seek the Lord with a sincere heart, they were leading people astray with their legalism by forcing people to conform to their man-made customs. And it's for this reason that the Lord Jesus challenged their hypocrisy. Christian, listen. Christ Jesus didn't come to conform every Christian to the same legalistic traditions that some other guy invented. He's not about our conformity. He's all about, our, uh, about transforming our lives by, by fixing us but from the inside first. In order to prove my point, I want to consider something that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And so if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And as you make your way to the 12th chapter of Romans, I want to take a moment to consider the difference between those who are conformed outwardly and those who are transformed inwardly. You can always tell you know, who works at the big box stores when you walk in because they're, they're, they're all wearing the same clothing, right? They've been conformed outwardly. Though if you were to ask them different, their, their own opinions about various topics, you know, they're all going to you know, show that they're inwardly different in the way they think. But outwardly, they look the same. They've got the same color shirt on. They've got the same color pants on. You can kind of tell you know, who, uh, who, who works at the store. I oftentimes like to, uh, you know, dress in the same way and go to those stores and just walk around acting like I work there. It's just outward conformity, though. Right? And it's sad to say that there are many religious groups, even Christian denominations, who engage in the similar thing, right? They, they, they all dress the same. They all have the same skirts on. They all have the same suits on. They all do their hair the same way. And this is how you look if you want to be a Christian. This is how you act. These are the words you say. You got to speak Christianese. And it's all about outward conformity. And it's legalism. Meanwhile, what's going on in the inside? Same sins as everybody else. These groups fail to realize that outward appearances can be extremely deceptive. Therefore, rather than coming along and requiring uh, his disciples to conform to some legalistic ritual or some dress code, the Messiah came along to transform our lives from the inside out. Let's consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 12. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Christian, listen, the Lord isn't asking us to become conformists who are legalistically following the traditions of men so that we can outwardly show that, that you know, we're of the same uh, group. You know? No, no, no. Instead, the Lord is leading us to walk by faith with him so that he can transform our lives from the inside. And with this as the goal, let's just simply present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable to God because this is our reasonable service. And as we do this, the Lord will transform our lives. 
and he will help us to become believers that are able to bring glory to his name. Now, as we begin to wrap up this message, it's important for us to remember that uh, there are many, many, many misconceptions about our Messiah. We don't have time to tackle all of them this morning, but it is my hope that this study will help you to remember that it's a messianic misconception to think that Christ came to condemn us. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. No, instead, he came to provide us with a way to be saved from the condemnation of the law. And therefore, as we go out and reach uh, those who are lost, let's help them to understand that Jesus doesn't want to condemn sinners. He wants to save sinners. And we can present them with the gospel of grace by which we are saved. Secondly, it's also a messianic misconception to think that Christ came to condone our sinful behaviors. Rather than thinking that the grace of God provides us with some license to sin so that we can just continue doing whatever we want, thinking the whole time that, well, Jesus is okay with this. No, let's remember that he called us to go and sin no more. The Lord is calling us not only to repent of our sins, but then to walk in the holiness of obedience so that we can bring glory to his name. And finally, it's a messianic misconception to think that Christ came to conform us. He's not trying to conform us from the outside to make us all look the same and dress the same and talk the same. No, instead, the Lord is trying to transform us from the inside. He's not trying to conform us with legalistic rules. No, he has a plan to transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And with this as the goal, let's simply walk by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do, He will transform our lives and he will help us to become more and more like our Messiah. Let's pray.